Well, let's bow our heads and pray for a moment together, shall we? Lord, we don't want you to be ashamed of us. Uh, we set before you our longing as uh, those who are right now proud of you. Our longing that we should be acknowledged on that day as those who've been faithful. And we ask too that you would make us fruitful in our generation and open our eyes from your word this evening to understand further and then to put into practice that sense of what continuing in life with you can look like. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just uh, imagine, uh, if you would, just to adapt uh, the opening that uh, my my dear brother gave me a little earlier. Um, Just imagine if you've gone to a terribly, terribly posh French restaurant. And, you know, the menu's in, the menu's in French, and uh, uh, the starters are there, and mains are there. Uh, wine list is brought to you with a flourish. And from the table next door to you, you hear this young voice ringing out, I'll have the chicken nuggets. There are times in life where the kind of what you see, what you hear, what you read, comes as a bit of a clash. And this evening, uh, that's where we find ourselves, with that kind of clash. Please turn to Numbers and to page... Well, let's begin on page 146. Because this is... Page 146 is a bit like the French menu. Page 14. Sorry, verse 14. Page 146. The divisions of the camp of Judah went first under their standard. Narshon, son of Aminadab, was in command. Nethanel, son of Zuar, was over the division of the tribe of Issachar. And Eliab, son of Helon, was over the division of the tribe of Zebulun. I'm going to stop now in case I run out of names I can pronounce. Um, but that's it. there it is. It's sonorous and it rolls out magnificently for you. And you can see them in your mind all the flags and all the people setting off. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you'll realize that the camp was uh, set up uh, around the tent, the great tent, the tabernacle, uh, and they were uh, ordered in their divisions around the tent, and they would set off uh, tribe by tribe, and we're told uh, we know who the people are, we know the flags, that the standards are, that they uh, go on. And so uh, what we're just waiting for is that little voice behind us to say, I'll have the chicken nuggets which comes fairly soon. And what we get in this reading that we actually had uh, for uh, the passage this evening is a tremendous irony. We began in verse 29. Now Moses said to Hobab, son of Reuel the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we're setting out for the place about which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will treat you well, for the Lord has promised good things to Israel. Uh, He answered, no, I'm not going. I'm going back to my own land and my own people. But Moses said, please don't leave us. You know where we should camp in the desert and you can be our eyes if you come with us. We'll share with you whatever good things the Lord gives us. What a great story this is going to build up to be. There's Moses. He's uh, uh, been in partnership with his father-in-law in the desert Uh, it's been a a good time. 
And from this Midianite, to whom the desert was a fairly native territory, he's, uh, even though they're, they're stranger people, the Midianites, uh, they, he's learned all kinds of good things, and he, he wants to take it, uh, uh, Hobab with them on this great journey that's going to end in even more good things. And so they set out. And you get this wonderful picture again. Whenever the ark set out, verse 35, Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, may your enemies be scattered, may your foes flee before you. Whenever it came to rest, he said, Return, O Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. Now the people complained. Moses is generous and offers to a foreigner, Hobab, the benefit of moving with the people to a new land. But the people complain and long to return as foreign slaves to the old land, to the land of Egypt. Put it another way. We, we read uh, throughout chapter 10 where there's this great movement as they set off of the challenge. And then uh, with this little story of, of Hobab, we get this address to the stranger. You were comfortable uh, with us, O stranger. Will you join us in the new life? And he's persuaded. But then later on in chapter 11, not from the stranger now, but from the very people of God, we get the message, actually we quite liked being slaves, we want to return to the old life. It is a story with almost kind of mirror image choices going on. And it is completely right to see the story as absolutely typical of how sin appeals to the life of the believer, your life and mine. Uh, the, um, the story is quickly told, uh, verse uh, 3, the rabble with the people, began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. But now we've lost our appetite, verse 6. We never see anything but this manna. The life of faith, the manna, if you like, can seem so very dull, especially if you've been on that road for a while. And the life of unfaith, Wow, meat, fish, looks much more appealing. But the life of unfaith is a deceptive memory. And they have forgotten what their life was like. So let's begin with the, the first of those, faith, the life of faith. And it can seem so dull. Can anyone think of a film made about the story of a really happy marriage. I couldn't. You don't make films about happy marriages. They're only interesting if they're unhappy, because then there's drama and something happens. But a happy marriage is a great thing to be part of, and no one says, oh, no one's made a film about a happy marriage, so I suppose my ambition had better be an unhappy one. Everyone has the ambition of a happy marriage because it's what we want. But no one goes and makes a movie about it. 
it might lead to very stable children. No one's going to make a movie about stable children. Um, I have on my shelf, I think I've used this illustration before, but it, it, it bears repeating because it, it, it's so um, odd. I have on my shelf a series of four sets of Bible reading notes. And I, they are staggeringly dull. I wouldn't recommend them to anyone. And fortunately, we don't carry them. Uh, but I sort of inherited them. And because they're Bible reading notes, you kind of feel bad giving them away. But anyway, on the front of each set of Bible reading notes is this incredibly exciting picture. There is someone um, uh, uh, wakeboarding. There's another one uh, bungee jumping. I forget even what. Oh, yes, there's one um, parasailing, uh, I think. And you think, yes, parasailing, that's it. Let's go inside. And what do you find? Leviticus. The, the, uh, the, the contents and the cover don't immediately uh, uh, link up with each other. And it's, it's easy to understand how the people of God might, under these circumstances, just have got a tad, just a little tad, bored with a diet of manna. If this is uh, strange to you, um, they were hungry and they appealed for food to God, and he arranged for this manna stuff to appear every day. Clearly some kind of um, sort of agricultural thing that the land uh, produced, uh, and we're told in numbers that where it came with the dew of the evening, and by the morning it was there, and it was a a, a sort of wafer-like product that they could eat. Slight taste of olive oil, slight taste of honey, sounds quite nice. Probably was nice the first week or so, but for a year, I don't know. But the truth is that this manna is actually what you might think of as battle rations. Now, throughout history, every army that there has ever been has complained of the food available in battle. It's in the nature of the rations that you get that you're going to complain about them because they need to be portable, they need to be uh, edible at short notice, and so on and so on. But what it was intended to do was to keep providing for them at a time when they were building their society in the desert. They'd come from being slaves in Egypt. They were building what was basically a military society in the desert such that they would be ready straight after this story, because they were kind of pretty close to the borders now with Canaan. They'd gone across the desert and they were ready, pretty much ready, to uh, start the battles that would lead them into the promised land. That's the kind of staging of where they were. This food was intended to be battle rationed. They'd been learning uh, to live together as a disciplined society. And they would always know what uh, what the future held, uh, because whenever the ark set out, according to verse 35, Moses said, rise up, O Lord, may your enemies be scattered. So if this seems like a dull period for them, it was going to lead to explosive activity. They were going to take the land. Now, the sad irony of the story is that actually we'll discover from a a couple of chapters after this that that same people end up dying in the desert. They do end up eating nothing but the rations that God has provided. They never get to the land of milk and honey. 
They never get to different rations because of their unbelief. Had they not complained, they were on the borders of Canaan, they'd have had ample excitement about to head their way. And I wonder if dullness is mostly a problem when there's a fear of the wrong kind of excitement on the way. So much for the life of faith. What about the life of unfaith? Uh, This is the life of uh, unfaith, uh, beginning in verse uh, 3. And it had all kinds of apparent advantages as they started to look back to the land of Egypt. If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions and garlic. Now I wonder if I'm the only one to have thought, frankly, if, if you, my brother or sister, were on a, men, uh, on a diet of uh, melons, leeks, onion and garlic, I'd like quite a bit of desert between you and me. Uh, Nigel Benn was a uh, boxer of the 1990s. He uh, won a title in two different weights. And in an interview last year, in uh, November of last, the end of November of last year, he said this to his interviewer from the BBC. People were telling me, Nigel, you're the best. And I was loving the adulation. I couldn't break that addiction to sex, drugs, and rock and roll for love nor money. I was addicted to that for almost all my career. I had everything, but I lost sight of things. You have an affair, and you end up saying, sorry, darling, here's a new watch. Sorry, darling, here's a new mansion. I was hurting the woman I loved, and I didn't know why. I suffered a depression, nervous breakdowns. I just wanted to end it all. It reminds me of Robbie Williams when he said on telly, I'm rich beyond my wildest dreams, and yet he was still suffering from depression. Hello, you've got 80 million pounds and you're suffering from depression. But that was the same as me. All that money, but there was something missing. There were two places I was going to end up, a mental hospital or six feet under. And then I read the word of God, Mark 8, 36. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit your own soul? Now, I'm not chasing anything, and my life is splendid. It doesn't have to be uh, sex and drugs and rock and roll that you chase. Uh, It might not even be an addiction. It's whatever looks more appealing than a life with God. You can go clubbing as a believer or as a non-believer. You can enjoy rock and roll. You can go skateboarding as a believer or as a non-believer. It's not always something bad that pulls us. It's often something that's just more appealing to us than God is. Just like the people of God wanted to go back to Egypt. Nothing wrong with meat and fish and cucumbers and lemons, uh, melons and leeks and onions and garlic. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But they were appealing precisely because they were not what God wanted for them. God wanted the manna. 
because he had a purpose for them and he was training them in a life of discipline because of what lay ahead. We've taken a quick look at faith and at unfaith. But the key to it all, it seems to me, seems to be this issue of deception. They and we forget the business of slavery. Nigel Benn said there of himself, and he said it of Robbie Williams, it's true there too, that we can forget that we actually used to be depressed. It's not to say that Christians don't get depressed. We can. But we can forget the troubles that we had when life in the before of our life. We can forget what it was like to be alone, which is not to say that we never suffer loneliness. We can. But at least here we are surrounded by a community and we can forget what it was like to be without that community. And the words that just seem to me to give this away so clearly are in verse 5. Imagine them saying to Moses and the tone in their voice, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt. And Moses, it was at no cost. I love that in a horrible way. As though manna for a start cost them anything. But I love the idea that there they are stuck in the middle of the desert and what gets to them is, we had all this stuff. Yes, why did you have it? Because you were slaves. You needed to be fed to carry on doing the slaving work that was your lot. And that's how deep it goes, that they forget the work. They forget the oppression. And what they remember is, we didn't have to pay for it, Moses. I I wanted to uh, check something, and I looked looked this up, and I realized that this is now a a long time ago. So let me just ask, how many of you have seen the first movie in The Matrix? Good, it's a reasonable number. The story of The Matrix is of a hacker who um, uh, goes into the world of uh, computers and begins to have a sense that there's something behind what he's seeing. Something behind that world. And eventually he makes contact with another character who uh, says, yes, there is another world. And you have a choice, and I'm going to give you a choice. And his famous quote from The Matrix says, this character, Morpheus, holds out to our hero, Neo, uh, a hand on which there are two pills, a red pill and a blue pill. And Morpheus says to Neo, you take the blue pill... The story ends, you wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland with us, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. He takes the red pill, our hero, and uh, after many adventures, uh, discovers not only the reality, uh, the grim reality behind the universe, uh, as he discovers that humans are basically being farmed for energy, Uh, but actually is in a position to do something about it. The people of God in this story have taken the blue pill. They've decided they're going to forget the reality of life, that they are escaped slaves. And we can forget that we are escaped slaves. We We can forget that slavery to sin is a basic human condition. 
And if Jesus has stepped into our lives and delivered us from that, that slavery to sin, again, doesn't mean we don't sin, but we are delivered from the slavery to sin, then we can forget that deliverance and go back and think, you know, it wasn't all that bad, was it? There was fish and there was meat and there was cucumbers and melons, and it was at no cost. Sin can suddenly sound incredibly attractive and free. What this story should tell us is that we must never slide into thinking that somehow if only our friends or those we're in contact with, our colleagues, our neighbours, perhaps uh, those we, we know from other ways, if only people, as it were, saw it, if only people kind of grasped this reality of Jesus, well, of course they would follow him. It is the mystery of the human heart that we so often prefer slavery. St. John records this awareness that though light was coming into the world, men, people preferred darkness rather than light. We don't understand why. We don't understand why we want to go back to that sense of a, a, a slavery that we forget was a slavery, but it sounds quite appealing all of a sudden. That's why John Calvin said the human heart is a factory for making idols, and it doesn't stop. We don't seem to have free choice. We seem to be biased, according to this story, and it's borne out in pastoral practice, towards stupidity, towards slavery, towards wanting to go back. So let's not suppose that somehow our friends will wake up one morning and just get it. They need telling. And even then, it's not an automatic button that we can press. Because that pull is strong. Bizarre as it may seem. Why would they do this? It's interesting, there is never an explanation. There is never a single word of explanation in Scripture for why this people in the middle of the desert, setting out in battle formation to take over a land of milk and honey... Uh, okay, they've got to put up with a bit of battle, dull battle rations for a while. But there is never a word of explanation why they would go, do you know, it wasn't that bad back in Egypt, was it really? And it was free. Never a word of explanation, because you can't explain it. It is a mystery of the human heart that it should be like that. We prefer a, a feebly remembered excitement, an apparent excitement, over a quietness that leads to real challenge and really to living a life of authority over sin, like they were about to take authority, as it seemed to them then, over the people that would uh, stand in their way on the way into Canaan. That's not how the story ends. They've got another huge hurdle but we'll, uh, to, to deal with because of this story, but we'll find out about that next week. So this story in Numbers this evening, it isn't an appeal to you if you're here as an unbeliever to turn and believe, but it is an appeal to those of us who are believers to press forward, 
to take up our cross, as Jesus says in Mark chapter 8. To live battle-ready, living sometimes with apparent dullness. Who knows the moment that you're going to be called on to draw on those long hours over the years of Bible reading. You can't know in advance. You don't know when the battle will come. It's a call to the believer to press forward, to take up our cross, to be battle-ready, living with apparent dullness sometimes, for the sake of the battles that will come. And if your Christian life tonight to you seems just a little bit too full of manna, just a little bit duller than you would like it to be, maybe it is because you are not taking up your cross following Jesus, taking the risks that will lead to great battles that may lie ahead. And the best way to deal with that, it seems to me, is to pray. So let's pray. And just take a moment of quiet uh, to, uh, to walk around your uh, Christian life and to identify those bits of it that if you're honest with God for a little moment, you do just find a bit dull. Take a moment, too, to, um, uh, for those for whom this may matter, uh, just to identify the life, in the life of those who don't follow Jesus, just those things that you think, oh, I wish I could do that and be a Christian. Those moments in life that other people seem to find more fun. Lord Jesus Christ, we give over to you this evening uh, our lives once again. You know those moments that we recognize as just a bit dull. Those aspects of our life that seem to have been going on nearly forever, but have never really excited us. You know, too, those aspects of the life of others that seem very appealing to us. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit, working through your word, just just as we've learned tonight, you would 
open our eyes again to see the dangers that, that can lie in a life where we just forget what it was like or what it must be like to be functioning without you. And where we're struggling with disciplines that may seem dull. We pray that you would uh, give us the will uh, to pick up our cross, to take that voluntary action, to, to get on with things that involve struggle and conflict and battle. Forgive us if we've settled into dullness ourselves. And we ask that you would give us uh, a relationship with you that is joyful and that you'd uh, give us a relationship with the world around us and its people that is effective and fruitful and anything but dull. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.